Welcome to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform that encompasses finance, technology, and public policy. Uh, SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews that we're doing in lieu of our in-person conferences, uh, which unfortunately were canceled this year due to the coronavirus pandemic. What we try to do in these SALT Talks is provide our audience a window into the minds of leading thinkers, as well as give a platform to the powerful ideas that these speakers are, are covering. Uh, today, we're very pleased for the first edition of SALT Talks to welcome David Rubenstein. David has been a frequent speaker at our SALT conferences, both in Las Vegas and most recently at our SALT conference in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, he is the co-founder and now the co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group which is one of the world's largest investment firms focused on private equity and, and venture capital as well, uh, more recently. Uh, David, thanks so much for joining us. We're gonna turn the interview now over to Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge, as well as the chairman of SALT uh, to conduct the interview with David. Take it away, guys. David, uh, welcome. Uh, uh, but I wanted to really just get right into it with you because we've okay. got uh, over a thousand people listening in and uh, wanted to thank you for for joining us. And so I'm going to start with some basic questions because I think people are curious to hear your thoughts on the economy. I just saw you on uh, CNBC. Several billionaire investors have grown very negative on the economy, think the market's ahead of itself, uh, obviously think that we're heading into a potentially prolonged recession, to use uh, Chairman Powell, Jerome Powell's words this morning. And so what are your thoughts? Uh, thank you very much for inviting me, uh, Anthony. I'm pleased to be here. And I've spoken at many SALT events are, around the world. And uh, congratulations on what you've built with SALT. Um, there, let me quote two people at the beginning. To agree with one and disagree with another. There was a man named Bo Goldman, who was the script writer for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And he wrote a book about Hollywood. And it was called Nobody Here Knows Anything which is to say nobody in Hollywood really knows when a movie's going to make it or not. Nobody really knows. Well, the truth is everybody on TV, including me, really doesn't know what's going to happen because we've never been through anything like this. There has never been a combined gigantic recession with a healthcare crisis of the likes we have now. So nobody really knows. You can make guesses. And if you don't say when something is going to happen, you know, at some point you can say your guesses turned out to be accurate. But nobody really knows. And I don't really know. My guess is that right now, the economy is uh, in a recession. It may go into something between a recession and a depression, but we are not likely to get out of it anytime soon. And when we get out of it, it'll be uh, take quite a while. Now, the other person I would quote is Sir John Templeton, a famous investor. You're probably familiar with him, of course, and uh, one of the greatest investors of the 20th century. He famously said, the most dangerous words in the English language for investors to use is, this time is different, which means to say, that when somebody says, oh, this has never happened before, this time is different, uh, ignore that because things always revert to the mean. But this time is different and he's wrong because this time you've got the healthcare crisis and you've got the financial crisis combined is an unbelievable uh, problem. And let me make one final comment about this before we get on the other things. This has really hit home to me personally. I am now 70 years old. I'm a baby boomer. I am a fair bit older than you. And baby boomers, I call them, uh, well, let's put it this way. Tom Brokaw used to say, and he always said, that the people that fought World War II, they were the greatest generation. I call my generation that we're not getting off the main stage generation. 
because we never want to get off the main stage. We're running for president. We're running this. We're still not giving up our jobs and so forth. But now we are seen not as aging baby boomers, but as senior citizens. And people are worried about our health. And I'm worried about my health because I realize in this crisis, your life could go very quickly. You know, normally when you get to be 60, 70, you've got reasonably good chance of getting to be 70 or 80 or maybe 90. And your parents are, or one is uh, in their 80s. You're both in their 80s now? Yeah, my both my okay. parents are in their 80s, so yeah. Thank when you God. get to be 70 or 80 in the modern world, you feel if you're going to, something's going to go wrong at some point, you will die from something, but you generally have a chance to have some doctors treat you well. It might take you five years or 10 years before it really gets you. And you have a chance to say goodbye to your family, your loved ones. In this crisis, you have a chance of dying within a week and you have no chance in some cases of saying goodbye to your loved ones. So it scared the hell out of a lot of baby boomers, including me, that maybe I catch, a, I catch this and all of a sudden I'm gone. So I am doing everything I can to stay reasonably healthy and trying to get other people to stay healthy as well, because this is a virus the likes of which we've never seen, at least not for 100 years, anything like this. So the economy is not in great shape. It'll come back in time. I don't know if it's one year or two years, but when it comes back, it's a different economy. People are going to do different things. They're going to save differently. They're going to spend differently. They're going to do things they didn't do before. And so it's a different world we're going to come back in. This has scared people like me and others that, you know, life could go away very quickly. And therefore, we have to recognize that recognize the economy is important, but it's not the most important thing. It's our health. And uh, it's a very sad commentary that we have a situation today that people in this country have to sit in food lines for hours and hours and hours to get basic necessities. Who would have ever thought this would happen in our country? Um, I, I realize there are food banks and, there are, and then there are homeless people, but people in, in the middle class uh, or so have never had experienced anything like this, and this will scar them forever. Well, I listen, I not only agree with that, I think the very sad fact of the country right now is that we we are getting the reckoning of people living paycheck to paycheck or small businesses living cash flow month to cash flow month. And of course, we all know now that our hospital system is probably not what it needs to be to handle uh, a crisis like this. But uh, I saw your interview with John Barry, who wrote The Great Influenza. You did an interview for the uh, Library of Congress a few months back. And I'm just interested because I know you read his book and we came out of that crisis pretty well uh, in the sense that we had the roaring 20s. Do you think we're setting ourselves up for some pent up demand and the combination of the stimulus plus the pent up demand like what happened after the Spanish flu pandemic will happen? Or yes. do you think this thing will roll over? Well, for those who haven't read that book, it's called The Great Influenza. It came out around, I think, 2004 by John Barry. And he really went through the so-called Spanish flu, which never really originated in Spain. And it turned out that 50 to 100 million people around the world were killed and almost, I'd say, 700,000 in the United States. One of the interesting things about that was President Wilson never mentioned it publicly because nobody wanted to do anything that would damage the World War I effort. So it was never mentioned publicly. Public officials weren't honest. And his main message is be honest and upfront about the damage uh, that it's coming about. Now, um, I should also point out that, he, that he, he, he has said in his book, we still do not have a vaccine for that um, influenza or that virus. In other words, here we are 100 years later and we never developed a vaccine for that. We still don't have a vaccine for HIV. We have some things, if you get HIV, you can be 
I have therapeutics. We don't have a vaccine. So I think we will get a vaccine, but I don't know that it's, 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 a, it's a layup because it's, it, you know, it's not easy to get these things. In terms of the economy and the roaring 20s, yeah, economies will come back. You know, we have in our country 330 million people. You know, they want to be economic animals. It'll come back. But the question is, will we be damaged psychologically such that it's going to take a while for people to really feel comfortable traveling, socializing, and so forth? And will people be doing the same things? We don't know. One of the sad things is this. Um, I have a program where I interview people, CEOs from their homes, and saying, how are you managing your, your company from your home? And what I'm finding when I ask them is that they're saying it's working out okay. And in fact, a lot of their employees actually would rather stay at home and they don't want to rush back to work. Certainly, if it's not, there's no vaccine. So you're going to see a lot of people not coming back to work in the traditional ways. And the result is I think fewer people are going to need as much office space as before. People are going to tra uh, commute less than before. It's going to change the way we live. And I think for, for many years, it will do so. So, so that, that, that's a good transition then into private equity. You, you mentioned on CNBC about an hour ago that you have dry powder. And so when you see these accelerated changes in commutation, work from home, retail expenditures right. really going direct to the consumer, wh what do you, where do you want to go with your private equity business, David? Well, the lesson of the Great Recession was that people in the private equity world made a lot of money by buying their own debt back at a discount, putting more equity in the deals that were not doing so well. In the deal, the deal that made the most profit was the Blackstone deal for Hilton, and they had to restructure it uh, one or two times, and they, but they ultimately made a $14 billion profit on it. So a lot of private equity firms are spending their time making sure that their existing companies are doing okay. That's what they know best, the companies they already have. Once they're past that, they are looking for new deals. But nobody has ever gotten into the Forbes 400 by quickly buying a company in a recession in an area they didn't know much about. So you really have to make sure you do a lot of due diligence and wait for the market to kind of come near the bottom. Nobody can ever time the bottom or the top of markets perfectly, but I don't think we're at the bottom of the market. I think the stock market has been ahead of uh, the, the economy for quite some time, and I think we're increasingly seeing that uh, more and more people are saying that. The economy is, you know, you've got 30 million people unemployed or underemployed, and you can't just say the economy is, is so, so wonderful and the stock market deserves to go up. I hope the stock market keeps going up because I, I own some stock in lots of companies, but I, I just don't think it will continue to do that way. And I think it'll have it'll vacillate a lot. And I think it's going to take a while for the real economy to kind of grow into where the stock market currently has it. Well, you, you mentioned the real estate stuff. And so I, I'm curious your reaction to that. You know, James Gorman was on CNBC last week and he said that uh, he can more or less do off of his Zoom application, a VPN at home and his uh, telephone and his email, uh, almost everything that he's doing in the office. And so uh, when you think about commercial real estate and suburban commercial real estate, as well as these uh, urban centers, uh, what's your opinion of that? Is that overblown to think it's going down or there'll be excess capacity? Or, or do you think that we're really no. in for a accelerated trend? As an owner of real estate, uh, office buildings, other things, I hope that everybody comes back quickly. But to be realistic about it, I think that people are not willing to go back to work until there's a vaccine in many cases. People don't want to go through public transit in many cases. So I think it's going to take a while. And I think employers, what they're not really saying to people is this, we don't need as many employees as we thought we did. And probably we are not going to bring everybody back. Most of the CEOs I talk to do not commit to say, everybody that's working today, when we come back full time, I'm going to hire them all back. 
they're not saying that they're more vague. They're just saying, well, we won't have furloughs uh, forever. We'll have to deal with it. But basically, nobody's making commitments. I know they probably don't need as many people because you can work very efficiently from home. I'm a perfect example of this. I am a last adopter of technology. I usually, when something is about to go out of business, that's when I, I get involved with it. So I, I probably the last person that got an iPhone in the United States, I was using BlackBerry until they didn't, they didn't service it anymore. So now I have an iPhone. I've been using an iPhone for a couple of years. Now I, am, I have a technology team that has gotten me set up at home. So I now have a portable computer. I have an iPad. I have a, a, a bigger computer. And I've got all kinds of telecommunication stuff. I, it, I have a half a, a, an army teaching me how to use these things, but I'm not probably that different than a lot of other people. And I, I actually, it's pretty comfortable working at home. So I don't have to go to the office every day where I can be in more pleasant places than where I am now. So I think it will change, yes. Um, can can we switch more to the macro side? Because I'm, I'm curious of your reaction uh, and your historical perspective, for that matter, on the deficit spending. So we're massively ramping up deficit spending. Uh, we're going to probably get deficit spending up to that uh, World War II percentages in terms right. of our GDP. And what's your reaction to that? Are you worried about it? Do you think it's a non-event? You know, there's a gradation from the apocalypse, doom and gloom people. Right. to the modern monetary theorists. Right. Where are you on that spectrum and what's your thoughts on it? Well, when I worked in the White House for Jimmy Carter, our last budget uh, was sent up to Congress and had, I think, a $59 billion proposed deficit. That was seen as so big, we had to pull it back and pretend we had a balanced budget we sent up to Congress. Um, today, a $59 billion deficit would be wonderful. We're going to run about a $3.5 trillion annual deficit. Um, I would, I'm stunned that the markets are accepting this, but apparently the markets don't seem as, as worried about it as I think they should be. I don't know how much longer you can run up $26 trillion of debt and have nobody worry about it and not have inflation. So I guess I'm old school in thinking that this is not a wonderful thing. I recognize we have problems now, we have to deal with it, but I do worry that when interest rates eventually go up, it'd be very expensive to pay for this. Um, so um, I'm worried about it, but I think it's my children and grandchildren are going to pay it off because I'm not going to be around to pay off these, uh, these large amounts of debt, in my view. Uh, there's a lot of saber-rattling going on between the American government and the Chinese government related to trade right. and now the virus. And so, right. uh, and I know you're a student of history and you understand the Thucydides trap related to rising right. superpowers causing a threat to the existing power structure. So where do you think that goes? Uh, okay. And uh, what's right. your advice well, to people in terms of thinking about that? Under the Thucydides trap that Graham Allison wrote about, um, you know, out of let's say 20 examples he, he studied, maybe 15 or 16 led to military confrontation. We're not going to have a military confrontation, but we'll have uh, different kinds of confrontation diplomatic, geopolitical, cyber, and so forth. Um, the relationship is going to get worse before it gets better, in my view, because during the presidential election, there is no penalty for being negative on China. Nobody ever lost their congressional seat, their Senate seat, or their presidency by being uh, negative on China. So people are going to blast China. And as a general rule of thumb throughout history, people don't like to blame themselves for problems. They like to blame somebody else. So who is a good person to blame that doesn't vote a lot? China. So I think between now and November, China is going to get blamed for everything. If it, if it rains, China will get blamed. If it snows, China will get blamed. Everything. And I just hope that people um, recognize after the election's over, we need to come back because the two largest economic powers in the world can't be at each other's throats all the time. We need them to buy our treasury bills and produce products that we want, and they need us to get products that they want as well, but also 
uh, for investment technology and other kinds of things. So I, I think it's not going to be good for a while, and it's going to be a geopolitical problem between now and the time of the election, in my view. You know, there, there, are, there are people uh, sending me texts here wanting me to ask you certain questions. So I'm going to have an abrupt segue here. Okay. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about your upbringing. There's one question here I think is very interesting. Uh, you grew up uh, in the housing projects in Baltimore. I saw that uh, uh, 60 Minutes interview that you did. And your father was a postal clerk. Uh, David, you're the living example of the American dream. So can you take us back? And tell us a little bit about your journey, uh, where your origin was, and how you got to where you are now. I, I don't want to make it sound like I was poverty stricken. I was in a lower blue collar kind of family. My father made $10,000 a year or so working as a postman. I was an only child. We had an 800 square foot house, very modest. But, um, you know, like everybody in this who's listening knows that you accept as a child the situation you find yourself in. So I wasn't bemoaning the situation. I said, this is what my situation is. And I just did the best I could to deal with it. Um, and in the end, uh, I, I got lucky in life and uh, worked hard, but a lot of luck. And uh, it produced uh, some financial success. But financial success is not what I was interested in. I had no interest in making money because I grew up not having any money. There were no hedge funds. There were no private equity firms. There were no billionaires. And I didn't aspire to that. I just aspired to go into government and help the country that way. And obviously, I didn't. it didn't work out that well. I worked in the, in the Carter White House. We got inflation at 19% and we didn't get reelected. So I went back and practiced law. I wasn't that good at it. And so I, I went into private equity and it worked out for me. But I felt very um, loyal to the country because I got lucky with, uh, with modest circumstances I had growing up in a last name that's very ethnic. I'm not sure in other countries I could have done what I've done. So I decided to give away all my money. I'm in the process of giving it away largely to things that benefit the country, what I call patriotic philanthropy. So I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing that and I, I think my upbringing may have helped a bit. Um, you know, I, I have a book that I, I guess I'll plug right now. It's called How to Lead. Um, it's a TV show I have that talks about leadership that I, I ask people how, how they became leaders. And very often people became leaders like you by coming up. You've had modest, modest circumstances as well. You come up by failing, taking risks, not being willing to, uh, you know, just take no for an answer. And, and basically keep pushing and pushing and pushing and, and, and a lot of luck and helps as well and having good partners, being willing to share the credit. So there's no uh, secret formula, but I, luck helps a lot. If you were back at age 21 and you were, you know, in the financial circumstances that you right. were at 21, thrusted forward into the 2020 right. pandemic, what are some thoughts and some suggestions that you would leave for people in terms of uh, what to think about opportunistically, and what would your mindset be like uh, using okay. your historical perspective? Well, what if I were 21 today, I would say to my, and I have a son that's uh, graduating from law school and business school. He's in your son's class at in law school. Um, yeah. That, that um, you know, try something that is uh, something you like. In other words, you should, you, you never, nobody ever succeeds in doing anything in, in the world unless they love what they're doing. Nobody ever won a Nobel Prize hating what they do. You have to find something you love, experiment, find something. But today, I was not in that age interested in making money. Today, if I came out, I'd say, okay, I don't want to go into government. I want to make some money. I would probably find things that post-COVID-19 are likely to do well. A lot of things are going to do well post-COVID-19. It's not that difficult to figure them out and get into that industry or get in those companies and start those companies because the world will change over the next couple of years because of COVID-19. And 
And for uh, your viewers, I also, I've mentioned a couple books. Let me mention one other that might scare them. It's a book by David Quammen, and the book is called Spillover. And essentially he says, and this book was written in 2012, he says that we've got seven and a half billion people on the face of the earth, and we are increasingly encroaching on the land that animals occupy. We're mining, we're deforesting, we're killing more animals, we're, we're, we have all kinds of uh, livestock kinds of things where people work closely together with animals and they kill them and they have wet markets as they have in China. More and more viruses that live in these animals that don't kill the animals, they're jumping from animals to humans. It, and, and that is going to increasingly happen. And so people that can figure out how to take advantage of that and to prevent that, I think will do well. But also people are going to figure out how to take advantage of the fact that people are going to change their lifestyles. They're going to buy things differently. They're not going to buy the things they bought before. So those are things that I would probably do if I was a young entrepreneur trying to figure out how to take advantage of the situation in an appropriate way. You know, you, you're mentioning the book Spillover. I mean, one of the things in that book I found so interesting is uh, the, the immune system that we have, which is very strong, obviously, because it's, it got us to where we are evolutionary from an evolutionary perspective. The immune system of a bat or some of these other mammals is like 20 times stronger than our immune system. And so we obviously need to do more research on that. And so I'm wondering if you, what's your thought on this? The Department of Homeland Security was created after 9-11, a, a cabinet level position in the executive branch. Do you think we will have something like what was recommended in the book spillover, like a Department of Pandemic Defense or a cabinet level position going forward and agency that sort of protects the American public uh, the way Homeland Security did after 9-11? I think something like that would be a good idea because clearly we weren't prepared for this. Even the Department of Homeland Security really wasn't appropriately ready for this, and, Ho and HHS wasn't either. So I think something like that probably will get done, whether it's a full cabinet department or it's an agency, I don't know, but something should be done. One of the lessons we have to deal with is our supply chain. You know, we're completely dependent on China for medical equipment. We've got to change that. And other things that could happen in the future, we're too dependent on China for the supply chain. But also uh, vaccine preparation, vaccine manufacturing, all those kind of things, very, very strange in terms of the way it's, uh, it's, it's gone together. And take uh, testing. We, we haven't really tested that many people yet. And a lot of people are not comfortable going back to work until they have a test. So I, I think we've got to deal with all these kind of things. And it's sad that it's going to take us a couple of years to even, you know, deal with it. And I hope we can get through this crisis and, and solve it with the, the testing and the vaccines before the next wave comes. If you now remember from the Spanish flu, the second wave killed a lot more people than the first wave. I want to, I want to go to a question. Okay. Uh, 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 Bob Rendano, uh, one of my friends is asking, uh, just sent me a text about global macro capital flows. And uh, if you're sitting in an investment meeting at Carlisle, and you're, you're thinking about, okay, what's going to happen in a post-COVID-19 world in terms of where is the capital going to flow? What nations are going to benefit versus others? What industries are okay. going to benefit versus others? What do you think? Well, in the early 1980s, the phrase emerging markets was invented. And before we called those countries third world countries or undeveloped world countries, people thought because the young populations, prices are cheaper, less competition, invest there, you'll do well, and so forth. That maybe worked, maybe didn't, it wasn't spectacular, but now people are nervous about the emerging markets and they're gonna pull money out of it, I'm afraid. So they're gonna pull money back into the developed markets, you'll see more money coming into the United States, 
Look at all the money we're borrowing and the dollar is strengthening. Why is that? Because people want more dollars. The foreign currencies are going to weaken against the dollar. So I'm afraid the emerging markets have problems. I don't regard China as an emerging market anymore or India as an emerging market. But I think uh, you're going to see more money flowing into the United States. Uh, you're going to see uh, more money flowing into developed markets. In terms of specific industries, I, I do think technology is an industry that's going to continue to grow. Now, we right before this COVID crisis, we said maybe the big companies, the FANG so-called, are too powerful. Maybe they are, maybe they're not, but they're going to continue to aggregate power and money because we need them. They've done incredible jobs during this crisis. Take a look at Amazon. Amazon has done a lot of wonderful things during this crisis. You can criticize them in some respects, but they saved a lot of people's lives by providing products that people needed. So I don't think that uh, American technology companies are going to be weak. I think they're going to be strengthened and new technology companies will take advantage of this are going to be strengthened as well. What is, I think is going to be hurt is things that depend on travel, things that depend on people congregating in large amounts uh, of, of numbers of people, uh, sporting events, music events, all those things are going to be hurt for a while. They'll come back in time, I hope. David, uh, you know, it's a little another uh, uh, abrupt segue. Uh, people want to know what's behind you. Now, you're going to get a very high rating on Room Raider, David. I mean, probably like a 10 out of 10. Right. So what is that mural representing behind you, and who did that for you? Well, my uh, late mother-in-law uh, was a painter, and, and when we moved to this house some 30 years ago, uh, she painted murals here, and this is a mural of the White House. And um, my family is, is inter interposed in there as well. But it's a mural of the White House. And so I thought and, it'd be appropriate. Both, both of us have worked in the White House, so I thought it'd be nice to talk to you with the setting. Well, I, I think you lasted more mooches than me, though. I don't, I don't know how long your tenure was, but I've, I'm willing to imagine that you were there a little longer than I was, David. Uh, I was there for the entire four years, but, uh, you know, I didn't get as much visibility as you did. Well, you're doing a good job of visibility now, so I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not too worried about your, uh, your visibility. Uh, let, let, let's, let's talk about leadership. You've got this great new book coming out. Hold the book up again so people can see it. On and, how to lead. And, Thank you for letting me promote it. It comes and, out in and, September. Can you tell our audience more about it, uh, what the content is, the background, et cetera? Essentially, I've had a TV show on Bloomberg for about four or five years where I interview CEOs or leaders like Bill Gates, uh, Jeff Bezos, Oprah Winfrey, David Petraeus, people like that in all walks of life. And I always ask them, what did it take to be successful? How did you become a leader? And they all have their, their secrets. Uh, Warren Buffett or, or Lauren Michaels or Yo-Yo Ma, they all have different secrets. But in the end, it gets down to a number of things. In the end, in my view, it is uh, you know, being persistent, sharing the credit, being willing to take a chance, not taking no for an answer, um, recognizing that failure can be helpful to you. And um, in the end, I, I think there are many common traits that great leaders have. And I think it's very important that we produce more leaders because society needs really good leaders in all areas. And that's what the book is about. It gives some insights of how great leaders have thought they became leaders. David, before we, uh, we turn this live, you, we were talking about Eric Larson's new book about Winston Churchill. Right. I have it and right here. And the, I'm and not the, promoting it, but here it is. Yeah, it's quite quite an interesting book. I'm about halfway through it, but there are some similarities, as we both know, between President Trump and Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Can you tell us what you think some of those are? Well, President uh, Trump uh, became president when no one thought he would become president. 
Winston Churchill was somebody that no one thought would become prime minister. Remember, he did not become prime minister until he was 65 years old. Um, so people thought at that time his, his, his day had passed by. He also, um, ha he had a lot of uh, challenges. He had a lot of political problems. He couldn't get Roosevelt to go into the war. Um, he, he, he made it, it was difficult for him to get control of the government. So I'm not going to say that Winston Churchill and Donald Trump are the same, but they both faced challenges. Nobody took them uh, seriously when they were first saying they wanted to be prime minister or wanted to be president, and they ultimately became that, uh, the, those leaders. We, we've had many of our people ask us about Carlisle, the investment strategy related to Carlisle, and some of the things you're doing and thinking about strategically, and also in the context of the crisis. Could you elaborate a little bit on that for us now? Well, in, in, we've been through recessions before, so you have to know when you're in recessions, you can, the most important thing to do is to shore up what you own. So great fortunes have been made by people in recessions by just buying their own debt back at a discount, if it's available at a discount, or putting more equity in. Um, and, and that is very often what, what is necessary. Uh, in our case, we, we have spent a lot of time making certain that our companies are fully capitalized, making certain they can take advantage of all the opportunities that are available to them and all of our resources. But there's always going to be some things that don't work out perfectly. In Carlisle's case, because we've been through downturns and up, uh, up cycles before, we have a fair amount of experience in doing this, but there's no easy answer. And again, we're not magicians. Uh, we can't do the impossible. But generally, the larger private equity firms have a reservoir of, of talent that probably can work their way through these kind of challenges as well as anybody probably can. So I, I, I wanted to get your opinion on the upcoming election. As we both know, over the last 100 years, incumbent presidents typically don't get reelected if they've had a recession in the year of the election. Uh, this time, it may be a little bit different because this recession is really related to the pandemic and COVID-19. I don't think anybody is going to blame the president for the pandemic. There might be a debate about his response to it. Uh, but this time, it's a little bit vexing. Uh, what are your thoughts? Where do you think things stand on the uh, presidential election? A couple thoughts. Number one, uh, presidents who run for re-election in a recession generally don't win. The last three that did it were Gerald Ford, uh, Jimmy Carter, and, and uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. They all lost. And uh, the last president who got re-elected in a recession was William McKinley in 1900. So it takes, uh, it's tough to do. Secondly, um, you don't know where the economy will be in November. It's almost certainly not going to be as good as it was six months ago. But if you have a rising perception that it's coming back, then I think the president can benefit from that. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And I, I just think, you know, I have predicted the last six presidential elections, I think, wrong. I thought Carter would get reelected. I thought Al Gore would get elected. I thought Hillary Clinton would get elected. So I'm wrong almost all the time. So whatever I think is probably not the right thing. Uh, Joe Biden has a complicated situation he has to face. He doesn't have a way to command the airwaves in quite the way the President of the United States does. And there's not going to be a big convention, almost certainly a live convention. So he won't be able to do the kind of thing that you get the, the so-called bounce out of the convention. So it's going to be challenging. I suspect, as you probably know, most presidential reelections are referendums on the current president. So it almost doesn't make a difference who he is running against. If he is popular and above 51%, he'll win. If not, it's tough. So, so David, J Jerome Powell worked for you at Carlisle. Right. So take us into the inner sanctum at Carlisle and your employment review of uh, Chairman Powell. What do, you, what do you think of him as a guy? 
Um, he had, was leaving the George um, uh, W. Bush administration, George Herbert Walker Bush administration, where he had been an undersecretary of international affairs, and we hired him. Um, and he was native of Washington. He was one of the, lived back in Washington. He was uh, he had been an investment banker and wanted to come back to Washington. Um, I thought that uh, he's a very smart guy, very cerebral, low ego, didn't seek a lot of attention, um, hardworking, and uh, you know he he was in better shape than me. And and in lunch times he liked to go and ride his bike. I wish I had done that. I'd be in better shape. But he was in pretty good shape. He'd come back after lunch refreshed. Um, you know, and I, I think he, my own view is he's done as good a job as you can do. Imagine the situation he's inherited uh, with, with the COVID-19 crisis. So I don't know that Ben Bernanke or or or, or Janet Yellen or or um, or Paul Volcker would have done a better job than he's done right now. He's a difficult situation. Never been anything like this. I think he's doing okay. He's even-handed. He's not an economist. That's an advantage. You can understand what he's actually saying sometimes. Whereas economists sometimes it's hard to understand what they say. But so I, I'm pretty high on, on Jay Powell, and I think uh, he hasn't let this position go to his head. And I, uh, you know, I admire what he's done. How how would you fix the American education system? Okay, so the American higher education system, I think, is the best in the world. So I, the question really, I'm sure, deals with K to 12. If I really knew how to fix the K to 12 system, I would have been in Iowa, you know, many months ago running for president. I don't really know. Uh, Bill Gates would say that his foundation is focused on two things, K-12 education in the United States and healthcare in the poorest countries in the world. But I think he would say that the progress they've made in, in education in the United States has been modest because it's a very, very intractable problem. I don't really have a, a simple answer for it, but I do know that my own success in life, the extent that it's considered success, is due to the fact that I got a good public school education and I, I was educated. And I learned early on the importance of reading Right now, in this country, we have 1.7 million people dropping out of high school every year. Many of them cannot really read. It turns out that 14% of adults in this country are, are functionally illiterate. If you can't read, you're functionally illiterate, you have no chance of getting anywhere in this country. So we've got to let people know how to make sure they learn how to read. I would try to get discouraged people from dropping out of high school and do other kinds of things. But I recognize families have different situations and it may not be intact, it may be hard, but right now we're never gonna solve income inequality, never deal with lack of social mobility problems unless you get people to learn how to read and you let them get high school ground, high school education, at least a high school education. So I, um, I don't really have a solution for it. Uh, it's an intractable problem and, and I, I wish I had an answer, but I, I just don't, I don't think anybody really has a simple answer for it. Uh, David, you are a prolific fundraiser. You've raised money for Carlisle, religious groups, charity groups. Uh, you've traveled all over the world doing that. I was just wondering if you could give us some ideas about how you have been such a successful fundraiser. Uh, what tips do you have for our, our viewers? And could you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, there are different types of fundraising. There's political fundraising, there's philanthropic fundraising, and there's uh, business fundraising. They're all different, different kinds of things that you have to talk to people about. But in all of them, I think in-person presentations work better than, than uh, calling people. Now, in the era of Zoom, it may be the case that you can raise a lot more money than before with just showing up in, in front of a video presentation. I think that might be possible, but I don't know whether it will continue that way for the future. I think is the way to do it is you've got to be honest with somebody and explain it. You have to explain what, you're in, what the product is relatively in simple terms. 
You have to be, um, I think, an investor alongside them. I think it's very helpful to do that. You have to answer questions frankly. You have to give them bad news as soon as possible. You have to make sure that they um, understand what they are investing in. And you have to make sure that um, you are there for them when they need you. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes they may have financial situations themselves that might make it difficult for the fund or other kinds of problems. But I, I think in the end, uh, what it gets down to is having a reasonably good product, explaining it well, showing up in person has historically been very important. Now, whether you can raise a lot of money by Zoom, I don't know. It seems like some people are raising large funds now by, by Zoom. Historically, if I wanted to raise money in Abu Dhabi, even though I knew the people in Abu Dhabi very well, I'd still have to go to Abu Dhabi to show I cared. Whether that needs to be the, the case in the future, I don't know. But in the end, um, I think business fundraising is very challenging uh, in this environment because people have less money to, in, to invest, so they're very careful about what they're going to decide to invest with. You know, you're a one-man show in your own right, so you certainly don't need me. So I have to ask the last question. Okay, fine. This is, I want you to distill all that knowledge, all that financial knowledge, private equity, leadership knowledge, historical knowledge. It's America 2025. What does the country look like, sir? What, what are your hopes for the country? Well, at that time, I believe we will still be the biggest economy in the world. Our per capita net income will be still far higher than China's. But we have to recognize we're not going to be the most powerful country and the most financially uh, or wealthy country in the world forever. But I do think the country will come back from this crisis. And I do think the, the future is reasonably optimistic because the entrepreneurial spirit we have, the Constitution allows a pretty good system of government. Uh, we have a, a reasonably good uh, a higher education system, probably the best in the world. And I think the commitment to a stable form of government, commitment to capitalism, and the commitment to letting people try to rise up to their abilities is what makes this country great. And I think we'll still have it in 2025. Do you think that the partisan divide that we're experiencing right now will be better or worse by 2025? It's hard for me to see how it could be worse, though it was worse during the Civil War. I hopefully it will come back and hopefully this pandemic will enable us to come together after the presidential election. I don't think before the presidential election were to come together, but uh, I do think that uh, it's, it's pretty bad now. I haven't seen anything as bad as this in the last 25 years. Hopefully it, it, it'll get better. I don't think it'd get much worse unless we go into a civil war of some type. So I appreciate your having me, Anthony, and uh, I uh, welcome everybody's uh, paying attention to the things I had to say. I hope you, some of you found it interesting and uh, I appreciate being invited to uh, Salt Talks. David, hold the book back up before we let you go. Okay, how to lead. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.